Interview number 122, Odds Botkin, Storytelling in the Bardic Tradition. Thank you, my dear brother. What a beautiful soul. All children love stories. Folk tales. They are messages from our ancestors. Then you have come to the right place. We will have a storyteller in every school. Storytelling can teach. You have that openness of a child. Good on you, Eric, for doing what you're doing. That's a great question. Thank you. I'm inspired just to be here. I'm really honored to be here. We tell stories. Know yourself. Follow your passion. And live with grace. Hey, welcome to the Art of Storytelling. This is Brother Wolf, and I am so glad, I am so grateful that you have taken the time, that you have found this place, this place where we admire, where we respect, where we love the art of storytelling. And my friends, I have with me a master of the bardic tradition. I have with me today Odds Botkin. I first saw Odds on the stage of the National Storytelling Festival. I can't remember when. I want to say two decades ago, but it, it was a long time ago that I first saw him perform. And the thing that was really interesting about what he was doing then, and it's just as interesting now when I watched him perform yesterday, is that he is a man who has woven storytelling and music together seamlessly. He is a man who is not only a master musician, but he is a master wordsmith as well. He has mastered both art forms. Odds, thank you so much for coming on my show. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. So let me tell you a little bit more about Odds. Odds is a master tale spinner. He's a storyteller, a children's author, a musician, an educator. His unique performances telling stories with hundreds of character voices, amazing vocal effects, live muse-inspired music, has been mesmerizing audiences since 1982. His original musical accompaniments on a 12-string and electric guitar, Celtic harp, African thumb piano, and other instruments flavor each tale with a movie-like score, creating a cinematic experience for his imagining listener. Twice the subject of a Lincoln Center Institute in New York, Window on the Work, he has performed twice at the White House, at the National Storytelling Festival in Thailand and Great Britain, and across America at schools, museums, universities, and festivals. As artists in residence in venues as diverse as Emerson College in England, world headquarters for the Waldorf Schools, the International Storytelling Center in Tennessee, Odds is renowned for his epic tales, The Odyssey, Beowulf, The Rage of Hercules, yet he nevertheless creates an atmosphere so warm for little children that he routinely holds pre-K through third graders, happily spellbound for an hour. This bardic spell harkens back to the earliest storytellers like Homer who plucked a lyre and used character voices. Billboard writes about him, Odds Botkin is a modern-day Orpheus. That, to me, is the ultimate compliment. Recently, Odds appeared on NPR's Cambridge Forum, while Wired Magazine called him one of the great voices in modern storytelling. Time Out New York called him a one-man vocal universe and the talk of the town. USA Today says, seldom are storytellers so vivid and entertaining. I could go on about all the things Odds is, but I'd rather just talk to him. So let's go back to Odds Botkin. Um... Ah, uh, do you got a story you could share with us? I have a very brief story that I could share. How's that? <clears throat> Chinese conundrum. 
It's called The Missing Axe. There was once an old farmer who owned an axe. The blade of the axe was so sharp he could pass it through a, a, a log as if it were a knife going through softened butter. And along the handle of the axe were carven all the gods of the temple, and it was adorned in bright red paint and gold leaf. And he kept his axe in his barn. But one day he went to his barn, and the axe was missing. He threw over a sack of rice, but it wasn't there. He grew very upset. He pushed away a watering trough to see if it had fallen behind it, but it wasn't there. He began to work through his staves and his pitchforks, lo looking for his axe, but it was indeed missing. And that was when he noticed, walking past his barn door, the young teenage son of his neighbor, the old farmer, ran out and grabbed the boy by his collar and demanded, Where is my axe? The boy looked like a thief. He walked like a thief, and he spoke like a thief. It wasn't a week later, though. The old farmer went to the place in the forest where he cut his best timber, and there stuck in a stump where he himself had left it, but completely forgotten, for he was getting old, was his missing axe. And next time he saw his neighbor's son, the young man looked and walked and spoke like anybody else. <laughs> I loved how in that story you used the music like you were your own you you were your own orchestra conductor you were you were creating this uh, beautiful background music for the story. Well, that's the form of storytelling that I practice. I play a large variety of instruments and other than Paul Bunyan's stories which I perform a cappella just about every story that I tell in my repertory has some sort of musical accompaniment. If I'm telling an African story, I'll use a sansa, a thumb piano, that is really fun to play. Sometimes I'd use an alto recorder, often 12-string guitars in various tunings, you know, and a Celtic harp. Uh, I'd do some electric stories with a stomp drum and a Gibson SG electric guitar, depending upon uh, the kind of venue I'm, I'm in and the sort of material I'm offering the audience so yeah and it's really fun because it allows me to and and try to attempt to enhance the emotions at work in the story <clears throat> for some people for most people i think it works for some people it's, it gets in the way of their concentration which is a uh, is a shame but uh it certainly you know uh, uh harkens back to a tradition that uh, as you read in the introduction the, the Homeric bardic storytellers, they, did, they would pluck a lyre. The scholar's best guess is that Homer, who created the Iliad and the Odyssey, this is 700 B.C., would hold forth and recite his poems aloud and pluck a little harp, and he would characterize and bring these one-man pieces of drama to life. And so I always thought that that was a, a very interesting tradition. And so I've, I've become part of that tradition and uh, am pursuing it to this day. Your your instrument here is a 12-string guitar. Could you just tell us a little bit about it for those who, who oh, may sure. have a little well, or no well, experience? Oh, yeah. Well, this 12-string this guitar, this would be the music that I would play for the opening of the Iliad Book One, which I uh, perform for audiences, uh, university audiences. It lasts about an hour. And um, uh, this 12-string guitar was built by Ronald Ho in Port Townsend, Washington, 
25 years ago, I guess. It's a hand-built instrument. Um, Twelve-string guitars, of course, are the same as six-string guitars, but there is a little string next to the big string, and so you have the ability to uh, uh, make it sound much richer and bigger, and and also it's it's easy to tune it in different ways. So I'm in a sort of an op- open tuning that I uh, that I use for a number of stories. What what does open tuning mean? Well, um, instead of concert tuning, where you play a C chord the way a C chord typically would be played, an open tuning, if I strum the strings, it in itself is a chord. This is an E, uh, sort of a modified E. And uh, that means that all the configurations for putting your fingers on the strings to make music are... uh, you have to teach yourself to find them. Um, there are no books in which this tuning exists. I have inv- invented a bunch of them. and uh, but, but for the purposes of storytelling, it seems really to work. We, we, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a flexible sort of tuning. And if I'm doing an Irish story, you know, I'll do this some sort of thing. That blows my mind. <laughs> I'm 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 happy about that. Okay, you just said you just said I just made up some of it. Like I just created it. You know, I I just invented some of it. I mean, I, I thought music there wasn't anything left to, to be find. You know, is, is it just that there's so much in music, just like storytelling, people forget it? Well, um, I'm an autodidact. I I teach myself to play musical instruments by composing original music on them. Uh, And uh, I hear a lot of music constantly in my mind. And so it's one of the two. I work with two muses. I work with the literary muse, you know, where you do character voices, man, you know, and then then, um, other kinds of uh, muses. But, But the musical muse is one that makes me very happy. Uh, and it uh, it allows me to get to places that are uh, that that can be emotionally very disparate and interesting for audiences. I perform for the little the littlest of children, pre-Ks and first and second third graders, you know, all the way through university audiences, and it's sort of part of my uh, range that uh, that that uh, and middle schoolers and high schoolers, lots of them. Well, let's talk about just this using music as a background to story. Let's talk about the different moods you can set through music. I mean, it seems pretty obvious, but some people won't be obvious to them. Okay, well, let's say I'm telling a a tale from India. sort of a sitar-like. Uh, motif. And we'll, uh, we'll carry that on. Um, if the mood is meant to be jolly, or there's a jolly moment in an otherwise unjolly story, it's, it's, it's amazing how music will simply lift the audience right up out of a mood and transport them directly into the midst of another one. 
without my uh, my role as the storyteller to use literary devices to wind them around to that new emotional setting. It's, it, it, it is it's just the way movie music works. It's identical to that. It, music is a very uh, emotionally laden, uh, instinctive kind of information that people just instantly respond to, you know. And so if uh, it, it really depends upon what is going on. So that you can accelerate it. And what I do is I enact a lot of characters. And so music helps me cut to the chase. So music is a more efficient way of bringing in scene and character. For me, it, it in the kind of dramatic bardic storytelling that I practice, it is. But, but it's just one of many styles of storytelling, as I'm sure your listeners know. Uh, this is Rafe Martin, author and storyteller, and you're listening to The Art of Storytelling with Brother Wolf. So someone who's examining this form of storytelling, who's interested in, um, I would imagine that they would be able to, if they just had even six or seven simple riffs on the guitar, that those six or or seven different feelings express the guitar could be used as a form of support to their stories. Absolutely. If they can train themselves to do both simultaneously. When I began doing this years ago, I set myself this task of trying to learn to play and speak at the same time. And uh, I'll never forget how, and this happens to many people who attempt to do this, as soon as you begin to play, the, the mouth, you know, it's like part of your hard drive is missing as soon as you try to play something. And then as soon as you start talking, then what it was you were playing falls away. And uh, so it takes a little while to have both muses running together. And then once you actually have them running together, then they can begin to inter-inform each other. And then one touches the next and it's really it's really fun sort of it's a very heady and delightful kind of blissful experience when it's working i'm really jealous <laughs> <laughs> i mean just as someone who's tried his entire life to learn an instrument um it just sounds really uh really interesting maybe for me a, a more I, I recently incorporated bells into many of my stories okay I have a, a set called Seven Bells, and I really want to find someone who has seven silver bells instead of the seven um, uh, Toys R Us bells I currently have. <laughs> sure. Well, that's a nice one, probably. <laughs> but, um, but that's as far as I can go, because it's it's easy to handle, you know, the bell and the, the tone, and it really does transport the audience. It really brings the audience right between, it carries them from one story into the next, it, it becomes a part of a story. It, it's amazing. It's all these things. Yeah, it, it really is another form of of oral tradition, and it predates uh, you know, what I would call you know traditional platform stand-up storytelling by <laughs> a few millennia. If you think about the origins of, of musical storytelling, you're all the way back into the Paleolithic era, where 
shamans would dance to drums and chant stories and 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 uh, people are uh, as i said in my keynote somewhat hardwired for the combination of music and and story and that's why good cinematographers have learned that you know once you've gotten your movie done you give it to the composer and then the composer says all right here we go and the composer then will custom craft the score right onto the uh, the raw or the edited finished film and so i just attempt to do that in in real time in much much simpler fashion but the idea is the same you actually buy tickets for this guitar when you travel like, do you put this guitar in the seat next to you, or how do you? No, I just downstring it and uh, pack it, pack it discreetly, and off, off she goes. She's been all over the, all over the place. This guitar, <laughs> all the other ones. The only one thing I don't travel with is the Celtic harp. I've tried to buy a ticket for it, but it's too big to fit in an airplane seat, so it stays at home. I'd like to know about Homer and telling Homer, telling the stories of Homer, the Odyssey, the Iliad. Sure. Um, so just talk about that experience. For the last seven years, every about September 3rd or 4th, I go to the Dana Center, which is a large performance space at St. Anselm College, which is a Jesuit college up in New Hampshire, in Manchester, New Hampshire. And uh, there will be 800 uh, college freshmen. This is their second night of college. They all just arrived. <laughs> They are bouncing off the walls. And I'm, for the last seven years, the um, humanities department has invited me in to begin uh, their, their experience because they're going to have to read the Iliad. The Iliad is the great war story uh, poem penned by the great Homer about the Trojan War. And it uh, is written in its original. Even in its translated English, is very dense and, and for a lot of modern young readers, very difficult to understand. And, and it's very unfamiliar territory. And so uh, what I do is I create a kind of popular, uh, popularization. It's a story of Achilles and Agamemnon. Agamemnon's the general. Achilles is the greatest warrior in the Greek army. And they're fighting over women. And book one is all I tell. There are 24 books in the Iliad, and I just do book one. It takes about an hour, but it sets up the whole story, and there are arguments. Carriage of voices like this, who argue with one another all they like, you know. You sack of wine with your bitch's eye and your antelope's heart. You know, so I have these guys arguing back and forth. All sorts of characters, old sears, all sorts of people. You know, and uh, and they they speak. And then I put in a few effects, and what what you end up with are 800 college kids just uh, absolutely still for an hour, and they are imaging this tale. I, I disappear. I'm just down there all by myself on the end of the thrust, the end of the stage. And they, uh, if the terms of the entertainment go well, and I always invite them to uh, consult their mind's eye, that they're going to be the cinematographers, they don't have to look at me... Uh, I try to prep them so that the act of imagining, which is what I what I hope they will do, um, it, um, it makes sense to them, and it's it's not it, it's an increasingly alien thing for them to do. 
but they're in college now, so they get to learn something new. Um, and I've done that for years and years, and it's a very interesting story. The Odyssey, I tell a four-hour version of it, takes three days with a guitar and a Celtic harp accompaniment, and I perform it all the time. The Odyssey, Belly of the Beast, is about 70 minutes, and it's one of my show pieces. If you go to my website and look at the performance calendar, you'll see Odyssey, Belly of the Beast all over the place. I'm about to do it out at Syracuse University next month. I did it for Harvard at their part of their epic series. I do it for high schools all the time. Uh, um, fly all over the country to be asked to tell the Odyssey. And it's the sort of story, it's very intense. And the music's pretty dynamic. And it's it surrounds the, the listeners. And, they, and there are 37 character voices in the, the Odyssey. And they, uh, every, Circe, Calypso, Zeus, Odysseus, Telemachus, the whole cast of characters is uh, something I work very hard to try to bring to life. And um, it, I've been t performing it, gosh, for at least 25 years now. And there's really fun guitar work in it. It's really rapidamente. It's, you can buy it as a download or a four-CD set you know, at my site. And uh, teachers use it. Again, it's not the Odyssey. It's a storyteller's version of the Odyssey. But it's performed in bardic fashion. So it's as close as one gets, I think, in the modern world to what a Homeric experience might have been like. And that's why lots of classics associations and classics professors and people of that ilk uh, see its value. Wow, that brings up a lot of questions. When you're developing 37 character voices for one piece, my understanding of developing character voices is it's really important to make sure that none of them sound too alike, so there's no confusion, especially in various scenes they appear. Absolutely. Yeah, so you really had to spend a lot of time thinking about what range each character was in and how that <clears> related to each scene that character was in. Mm-hmm. Well, if I'm an old man like this, oh, yes, I've done that, that's a very different sort of voice, don't you think? There will be no mistaking that this is some old man. <laughs> no. It's, that's, that's very different from um, a voice like this. Someone's all on this sort of voice. It's, old, it's a different voice, you know. <laughs> yes. Or this kind of a voice here. Or this sort of voice, yeah. Right? So it's just uh, it's voice work. And uh, I do a lot of it. And, and and the voices are usually distinct enough that uh, that the listeners will just project them, and that's uh, that's bardic storytelling. Do you ever use themes as background to indicate a character is arriving or is on the stage? Yes, musical light motifs, absolutely. Um, that's. Just the way in Star Wars you hear dum dum brum dum da dum dum da dum every time Darth Vader shows up, I use the same sort of idea, where there um, light motif L E I T M O T I F is a word that was coined by Richard Wagner, the great uh, the great um, German operatic composer, and he uses a kind of a musical signal for each character and I uh, well let's see what would be one well uh, 
this. Agamemnon, um, the Lord High Marshal of the, uh, the the Achaean army, camped outside the walls of Troy in the Iliad, and so it's driving, it's aggressive. He's a very aggressive, driven, crazy kind of character. So, uh, and then Achilles, for since I have this guitar. arguing so there's this music under underneath the characters going back and forth and it's not lock in lock step with their speech or anything because it's also there to just create the mood you ever wonder if so much of what you're doing is just going over your audience's heads, that you're, you are a master of a tradition that the audience may not be skilled to hear. The audience may not have the capacity to fully hear the tradition you're offering them. No. So you feel like the bard tradition is something that's, that's available genetically, something that people are designed to, to to access. Yes, I, I think that uh, in, in my experience, I've been made I made my full time living at this for thirty years, and have been all over the world to do it, and uh, have appeared in all sorts of venues and interesting places with and met a lot of wonderful people, and uh, I have yet to find an audience who uh, is incapable of entering this this wonderful fun imaginative state. Even nowadays, with with uh, social media as powerful an influence as it is, visual media, TV, videos, movies, everything that tend to uh, flatten out a young people's um, I don't know what you want to call it their imaginative space. You know, instead of being a sphere, sort of more like a donut or a, or a plate floating in there, if they never get a chance to exercise their mind's eyes. But nevertheless, that's why I go to these lengths, because it sort of cranks open uh, 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 what I consider to be a sacred space, a sacred imaginative space. And it just cranks it open. I'm very hard to ignore. I try to make myself, especially for middle school or in high school audiences, I try to be very hard to ignore. <laughs> and the music really helps with that. And the characters, and, the, and if I'm going to uh, begin a story... the wind effect to open it up so they won't they won't expect that and that immediately will engender a sort of sense of mystery and they and they might see mr wind in their mind's eyes before anything needs to be said uh there's a lot of vocal effects lots of sounds but hopefully not so much that it becomes really tiresome for the listener just every once in a while 
That was amazing. You know, I mean, there's just so much about what you do that's just so amazing to me. I just can't. <laughs> I'm glad you like it. <laughs> it's a strange craft, let me tell you. How would you recommend somebody who wants to learn to do what you're doing? What skills come together? I mean, so far I've seen you um, music and guitar. I've seen you do character voices, so acting. I've seen you do um, sound effects, so that's a whole different... That's not, that's not in acting. Acting doesn't cover sound effects, so that would be um, its own field. What, what else? Being able to write. Being able to write and edit. I think it's really good practice for people who are public speakers to uh, attempt to be good writers and, uh, and and to attempt to try to offer a kind of language, at least in storytelling, that's a bit elevated and isn't your typical, you know, run-of-the-mill street language, uh, which I use all the time when I'm on the street. <laughs> but prefer not to if I'm in an interview like this or if I'm on stage or something or I'm, if I'm teaching storytellers or training, working with fellow storytellers or just novice storytellers. I'll go through a whole series of exercises, imaginative exercises. I used to teach uh, for seven years. I taught graduate students at Antioch, New England Graduate School, developed a nine-week-long course in imaginative technique, creativity, and mythology. So tell me more about the musical side of your work. This is all extemporaneous music. In other words, there are, t there are a couple of ways. There are lots of different ways to create music. You can either read music and then become adept at, uh, at being virtuoso and, and sort of uh, playing your instrument using the, the work of a, of a composer, let's say. If you have a, a, a great uh, a pianist or a great violinist whose job it is to offer concertos to symphonic audiences, then that's a certain kind of, of learning, and they're there to interpret. They're not there to create fresh music. They're there to interpret the work of a composer. What I do is I uh, have developed a series of sort of different ideas that are available to me to play depending upon the sort of mood that I want to, uh, to, to share with the audience. And I've created all the music myself. So therefore, it's not as if I have a memorized program that I, I'm obligated to follow. I have a friend named Roy who's a, a, a Wagnerian opera singer. And he looks at what I do, he tries to figure it out, and I look at what he does, and, and I try to figure out how he does this. He, he knows hundreds of operas that are by, by memory, by rote, and he can sing them all. That is astonishing to me as a memory feat. Meanwhile, uh, he it, it looks at what I do and says, uh, you don't know exactly what you're going to do, do you? And I say, no, I'm in the presence of the muse. I, I'm... I trust the muse. I, I'm a storyteller. And so, uh, so I scan along in, in various forms of imagery, uh, visual, kinesthetic, olfactory, auditory imagery. I have a very uh, clear representation of the story material in my imagination. And I never know what it will do. So I don't plan the music. I have got an idea if I'm doing something that has a song involved in it or something. I'll... Uh, I'll, I've become comfortable enough with the music that I can offer it, but uh, 
but very few of the stories have ever been scripted and the scores have never been scripted and so they breathe so it's fun to do them each time because it's a creative experience for me you must have someone like yourself who has so much creativity and so much potentiality you must have portions of your work that not a lot of audiences have seen that you wish audience would see more of what what portions or what what would you what do you wish people would pay you to do more of I took 25 years to write an epic poem called The Rowan Canticles, a tale told in the ancient manner. And I would like audiences to, someone to fund me so that I can record it. It's 13,000 lines long. <laughs> it's a kicker of a story. It's a high fantasy adventure story of wizards and love and war and and subatomic phenomena and and the overthrow of corrupt governments it's a really interesting story i could recite the beginning of it but i'm what i hope to do is to be able to uh, you know engender enough income to be able to sit down and record the whole thing with voices uh and you know it's 40 50 60 hours long and it's all in iambic tetrameter uh it took me a long time to write. It starts like this. Some say the spirit lives alone within its cage of flesh and bone, and that one never truly hears another song, though sung for years. Perhaps those sad empiricists should hearken to the lyricists, who against the odds to hope still cling, whilst in imprisoned souls they sing. Here then a tale, not told but sung, its faux anachronistic tongue silvered on purpose for the rhyme, its syntax bent. Now how much time twill take to lure you down these trails the ancients walked, before the tales of verse grew rhymeless with ennui and self-absorbed modernity, well, who can say? And then it just goes on and on and on and on. And some of it's in couplets. Those are those are those are couplets, but some of them are quatrains, you know, or every other line pulses. Uh, it's really fun. It's a fun. So that's one thing that n very few people have heard of my work that I'd like to before I expire and leave this veil of tears. I'd love to try to get it out somehow. <laughs> you also play. Um uh, the harp with your music. I saw you telling a story and playing the harp. Yeah. Could you just talk about that experience of, is it, is it, is it pretty much the same as the guitar? Would you talk about it the exact same way? You talked about the guitar a minute ago in terms of supporting a story. Oh, it's a very different instrument, certainly. Um, I play, it's a Celtic harp and, uh, it's just tuned to, uh, a straight diatonic scale. It's a simple instrument. It's not chromatic like a concert harp. But I've learned uh, to extemporize on it, and uh, I've created a lot of musical light motifs on the harp. And they're at my beck and call, much the way these ideas on the guitar here are. And uh, and I've learned to tell a few stories with them. It was fun doing the keynote address yesterday, and to just accompany the uh, the idea and a joke in the beginning and all that with with harp music. Uh, Again, you know, some people find that um, it uh, makes it difficult for them to follow what it is I'm saying. But I think for most people, it's sort of an enhancement, I hope, uh, and an entertainment enhancement. 
and I, the, the harp has, well, for instance, if I'm doing a performance, I'm in a school, let's say, often if I, if I have a, a chance to be in the space, I'll invite, children will come in. I, I'm a children's storyteller. I don't tell uh, too many adult stories. And I'll be seated and I'll be harping for the children. And it's part of the technique that invites them. I'm extemporizing away through the PA and they're just sitting there. They come in, they sit down and they just start to listen and they watch. The littlest of children who would typically be bouncing all over the place, poking each other, talking, you know, getting up and down, looking this way and that. They all, I just give them a big smile and I just continue to play the harp and change up the moods a lot for them. And then I'll stop and then they'll applaud and I won't say anything and then I'll smile and then I'll go back and I'll play for them some more. And slowly the whole place will fill with three or four hundred children. But they'll all be there. They'll all be... I'd make friends with them with the harp without saying anything. And so they're all my little friends before the introduction is made and I speak to them. As each child files in, I smile at them and I wave. Till I have greeted till I have greeted every child arriving in the place. Yeah. Yeah. It's that same sort of greeting. It really helps them. Uh uh, so you, it's a warm beginning, just like you described, and with with, uh, with the way you do it. So I have this harp that helps me do that, and uh, it makes a huge difference. And the, then they then they don't have to be told to be quiet because they're already quiet, and they're all they're already attuned. And it usually takes about ten minutes. So I'll just play for ten minutes while they all sit down, and then off we go. In terms of your education as a bardic storytelling, I'm going to return this question again. Of what is a key element? If somebody said to me, I want to be a bardic storyteller. I mean, one idea. I mean, did you have a bardic storyteller that you worked with, apprenticed at some point? Do you have, I mean, who was your elder? Who was the person who inspired you into this tradition? I didn't have one. I decided uh, back when I lived in New York City and was spending time at the Jung Foundation, was interested in depth psychology and the unconscious mind and all that sort of thing. Uh, I decided sort of all by myself that I was going to become a storyteller. And I thought at that point I was the only one who had thought to do this up in, in, in all the world. And I went and told a friend, uh, a friend of mine, John, I said, hey, you know, I'm going to become a storyteller. How about that? I caught this ancient ray or this ancient beam of something that really excited me. And he said, oh, you should go here. There's a professional storyteller. She's going to be at the Museum of Natural History. <laughs> so I said, oh, you mean I'm not the only one in the world? And so I went up there, and there was Jackie Torrance, who's a wonderful African-American storyteller. She was just fabulous. And she was the first pro I saw. And uh, she came out and sat down, and I was truly astounded at how entertained I had been in her presence. And I said to myself, oh, I can do that, and I'll just add music. I knew I had the sort of package of, of interests and talents to do that. And uh, and so that is uh, how I first became enamored of this line of work. Did I answer your question? I think I went far afield. I, I've heard Jackie Torrance come up a number of times, a number of people. I grew up in New York City. 
and Diane Wolstein came to my preschool. Um, and eight years later, um, my sister's preschool teacher said, your sister says you tell better stories than me. Would you like to tell a story to the class? And that was my first public performance. <laughs> That's right. That's wonderful. Yeah, she must have been of tender years. That's really something. Yeah, some children are, are, are just, there's some, some natural delight. You know, you know how, how this works. And uh, that uh, you feel pretty fairly well alive. I think it's. I think there's a form of livingness that goes on when a storyteller is immersed in telling a story that it's hard to find elsewhere. It's almost like athletics. It's almost like playing a game. And that kind of intensity, when uh, when you're involved in telling a story, there's a certain wonderful life intensity. I find. Are all of your sets carefully scripted, or do, are you? Are you going from a carefully scripted story to another story you don't know? I mean, do you always know what story you're going from each time? Often I won't cho choose the stories that I'm going to perform until I see the audience. I'm doing a big public performance, let's say, with, with families. If uh, I'll look outside and if I see lots of little children, little two-year-olds and three-year-olds in their parents' laps, rather than more... Uh, uh, upper grade or, or mature kids, I'll, I have a whole rack of stories, 150 different scored musical tales that I can choose from, and they're all sorts of categories. Italian fairy tales, I have three or four or five different entire hour-long shows, I suppose, that I could use to uh, entertain young children, and then more to, for middle schoolers, different ones for high schoolers, and uh, different ones for adult audiences when I'm called upon to do that. I just find this integration of music and storytelling just so fascinating and so interesting because it is so impossible for me. And not to say that that's bad. I mean, that's that's who I am. I'm not someone of that talent and ability. Having said that, when you talk about characterizations, character voices, you know, you're at a level I'm not at yet, but I know one day I will be there. You know, I will continue to reach for it and to, and to go there. And... And it's just so fascinating to me, this idea of, of combining both those masteries in such an amazing way. Well, thank you. Um, one of the great tricks for developing character, I found, is an imaginative trick where uh, in, the, in the cartoonization of the story that you're working in, you know, the imagery, I, I often urge students to just be sure to place yourself within the eyes of the character who's speaking and then look out of those eyes and see the projected imagination from the POV of the character who's speaking. One of the things that I've been told repeatedly by many storytellers that I did not find true for myself is to be careful not to have any scene with more than three characters in it. That that's impossible, I've been told. And I have a number of scenes in some stories where I have seven different character voices. Hmm. Um, I was well, wondering it would be impossible for the storytellers who tell you to limit yourself to three. I'm <laughs> <laughs> you know, do, have you? Do you have scenes? What What is your limit in terms of number of voices in a scene, in a particular scene? Do you have scenes with more than five or six voices in it? Well, usually. Uh, for little bursts, if I have a bunch of animals arguing, I'll do all kinds of, uh, I'll do little bursts, uh, clusters of, of voices. 
Then I do a voice like this. And a voice like this, something comes like that. You know, what are we going to do? I'm not sure what I'm going to do, but I'm a mute, but I'm a baby. I don't want to do this anymore. You know, those kinds of silly things that are just amusing. Um, and then, but it really depends. There are some scenes where I'll have uh, five, six, seven different characters. They're not all talking to each other, but they'll, but they'll appear in it. Yeah. Uh, it. You know, the human voice is really capable of a, a huge range of... Uh, of vocalizations well it's it takes a lot of energy it takes a lot of energy but but with practice uh i've learned to do all kinds of voices and accents and things that uh that help us that help the stories i don't think we need to go really in detail about i mean i can cover that with someone else in terms of that particular skill set but when i'm i guess what's really fascinating about you is the level of creativity in general that you maintain you know you you're constantly creating new work. You constantly are are creating a musical scores for your different stories. You're you're constantly operating on three different levels, as far as I can tell. How, uh, what is your maintenance? I mean, how do you how do you keep this up? Is is there? It's my business. <laughs> I have no choice. It's how I make my living. <laughs> you know. Uh, it's just my business. That's what I do. So, so to you, it's such a part of yourself, this creativity that you don't, you don't need. Um, is there a point when you get burned out of of doing so many shows in a row, or it's just it's a part of you, so it's not that big a deal. It is so much fun to do this. You know, I feel like a pig in shit. <laughs> so I don't really complain too much about it. <laughs> well, Odds, it's been really great having you on the show. I really appreciate you. Um, I really appreciate your time uh, and your willingness to. I know you got to get on the road and you're taking a, an hour to talk to us. Um, I, th- I think what I'd like to know is... Does being a musician and being a storyteller, is that part of what makes this creativity so accessible? Is that, you know, music, there's this whole, con- this whole conversation in the arts about how music makes people access the brain in different ways. Yes. As a musician and a storyteller, somebody who's taught oneself to perform, to speak while, while playing, do you think that has in some ways... You know, it's it's allowed that creativity to be more accessible. Personally, for me, you mean? Well, the the Greeks had this notion of the muses. It's the root word for music and amusement and museum. And there were nine muses. And the Greeks had an interesting theory that if you were an epic poet, or if you were an architect, or if you were a singer, or if you were a dancer, if you were in any of the arts, that there were these demigoddesses. These lovely women who would come and sit at your shoulder and they would pour ideas into the top of your head. And that you yourself, as a human being, weren't really the creative source, but they were. And you invoked the muse whenever you wanted their help. Uh, oh, muse, help me out. <laughs> you know, I'm just a little human being. I need some inspiration, you know, which means breathing in. And... Uh, and so according to the to this ancient belief that was how people were artistically inspired 
And that may or may not be the case, may not be, uh, but there is an attitude that you can have or take toward your own creative self, which is very similar to that, which I try to take and get out of the way of the flow of ideas that's in the unconscious and just get out of the way of of them and they will begin to just sort of pour in the top of your head uh and and so one one the music then helps the the, the other they breathe back and forth it's like you know you have a another a bad example, but it came to mind as in, you know, two wheels on an axle. You know, if you don't have, with both wheels rolling, it's in balance, and and what happens to one sort of bounces and affects the other, and they but they're both rolling along together, uh, and that and so they help each other. This is Sankofa, and you're listening to the Art of Storytelling. So what offer can you give the audience? What, um, how can they hear your work more? Well, uh, visit uh, oddsbodkin.net. If you Google me. Spell it out for us. Sure. O-D-D-S-B-O-D-K-I-N, one word, dot net. And there you will find all my audios are available as MP3 downloads. A lot of them as CD sets. Uh, there are articles. There are lots of free stories to listen to. Some of my m- musical compositions, my symphonic music, you'll find out about the Hercules anti-bullying program that uh, I'm devising that uses an ancient story to try to get kids to reflect on their behavior. Uh, you can read about the Vanishers. There's a new museum app that we're creating that tur- that you play on an iPhone that... Uh, Families can play and turn museums into gaming spaces. Uh, there are all kinds of things there that uh, you know your audience might find interesting, and articles and things like that. Some videos, not very many, but a few videos. I'd like to remind the audience that I have a, um, a storytelling e-course at artofstorytellingshow.com/storytelling, and if you're interested in um, coming to a workshop. One of the things we talked about a lot is really creativity. And one of the things that I'm really good at is facilitating your access to your unconscious, as Botkins was just talking about. And if you are interested in working with me in one of my workshops to open up that doorway to creativity, especially with fairy tales, you know, sign up for that e-course and you'll be on the list to get alerts when we do workshops in Ohio or elsewhere in the country. And in particular, if you have enjoyed this conversation, you know, I really think um, there, this is the most amazing conversation because it really comes back to that idea that each of us are only in competition with ourselves. You know, Odds Botkin, there's only one Odds Botkin. You know, you can't hire another one. You can't go and find someone who is, you know, there's nobody else like Probably him. Enough. <laughs> yeah, probably enough. And there's no other brother wolf. And so if you want to bring one of these unique people to, I don't care which guest you're talking about, you're just talking about that one guest. There ain't nobody else that can replace him. Um, Odds, you got any last words for the international storytelling community? 
thank you for listening. Thanks for having me on your show, Brother Wolf. Give us some advice about uh, music and inspiration about music and trying music with your stories. And oh, Well, if you're interested in the telling of stories with music, find yourself an instrument and put your hands upon it. And just, even if you don't know how to play it, start putting your hands upon it. And if you do that with enough patience, you'll begin to find the places where when you put your hands upon it, it sounds sweet to your ear versus bad. Unless you want to make it sound bad to make things nasty happen. But other than that, find the places where it sounds sweet to your ear and you don't have to write them down. Just put them into your mind, put them into your muscles, play them over and over and over again. And eventually you will, be, you will have uh, much the way you can walk and talk at the same time. You can play and talk at the same time. And then that will open up all manner of creative avenues that, if you're interested in bardic storytelling, uh, will appear spontaneously of themselves. The thing to do is to uh, n not burden your memory with a lot of rote musical memorization, but rather to attempt to create your own music. That was a good sound effect. <laughs> <laughs> That's like a woman outside vacuuming. One of the key ideas that comes out of this conversation with me that really surprises me is I thought I was sitting down to a conversation with a master. And, and one of the things that's very true in the storytelling community is that many of the masters of storytelling, they all have a similar message, which is that what I'm doing is accessible to anyone they may not ever attain the level I am doing it at, but the tools are available to everyone. And as someone who does not have and has tried many years to have the, a musical ability to bring music into my storytelling, I can, I can tell you that I use bells with much success with my storytelling. It's simple, it's accessible, it's easy. And I... I really believe in what Odds said. You know, find an instrument, put it in your hands. It can be as simple as a flute. It can be as complex as a violin. But whatever that instrument is for you, when you hold it and you feel that sweet spot, it will ring true for you. And it has for me. Thank you, Odds, so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This guest has written a post to the blog that can be read at www.artofstorytellingshow.com This post includes a bio and a link to the guest's website plus other additional information about our discussion. If you want to respond to this show, you can find this post and share your thoughts through the comment system in the blog comment box. If you wish to join a future show as an audience member, go to www.artofstorytellingshow.com slash alerts and sign up to the email alert system. You can buy CDs of shows and preloaded iPods on the website. The music was created by Mary Kay Croft, and we are much indebted to her contribution. This show is produced and hosted by me, Brother Wolf, and I am responsible for its content. It is released under a Creative Commons non-derivative and non-commercial license. That means you can copy it and you can give it away, but you can't splice it up or sell it. High-definition versions of this show are considered copyrighted, all rights reserved. 
I've never seen it. Is I'm sure it's a very high quality mic, and uh, it's an H4N handy. It's a handy recorder. See, I love how these, now all the marketing it says on it. And how handy. <laughs> That's good. Excuse me. So what shall we do? Hey, welcome to the art of storytelling. Oh, God, that's amazing. Can I just have you hire? Can you just follow me around for a few days? <laughs> carry on, carry on. Uh, <clears throat> okay, let me do a real start. Today I have with me a master of the bardic tradition. I have... Do you know what the problem is? What's the problem? If you do that, I can't edit. Alright, then I won't do it. Yeah. Let's go. Because I can't... If you do it throughout the whole thing, which is really tempting, then I'll have to do it... Which is great. I'll have to do it as a live cut. I have with me today a master... um, Let me do a clean start. Maybe I'll try both of them and see how... Hey, welcome to the Art of Storytelling. This is Brother Wolf, and I am so glad that you have made the time that you... This bardic spell harkens back to the earliest storytellers, like Homer, who plucked the lyre and used character voices. Is that is that correct? Use lie? A lie? A liar. L-Y-R-E. Yeah, it's a little harp. 